Oh, well, you can tell my voice is not here. So I'm going to do the annoying thing where you drink water while you talk. I'll try not to do it that much. Here's what we're doing, though. We've been walking through a series of Christ in the Old Testament. And the point of that has not been look at how smart you can be and find Jesus in weird places. The point of that is to see that all of Scripture speaks with one voice, that nothing in the Bible is set against anything else in the Bible. That what we don't ever do is make an argument against unpleasant texts by having more pleasant texts. We don't have a God of the Old Testament and then a God of the New Testament. There is one God and Father. There is one Son through whom we approach Him, and He fills us with one Spirit. They are not divided. They are united as one, and they speak as one. What God says, the Father says, the Son says, and the Spirit says. So all that we see in the Scriptures is from the very heart of God, breathed out, theonoustos, from the inside of God, breathed out, inspired by Him. And then all of it has one main theme, and that is how is a holy God reconciled with a vile and sinful people? The answer to that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he doesn't show up in Matthew 1.1. He's always been the plan. There is no plan B in the providence of God. There is only plan A. Plan A gets revealed to us in Genesis 3.15, but it was always plan A from before the foundations of the world. So what we've done is we've marked the Old Testament with four tent poles to see how we can find major passages, moments in the Old Testament to see God's redemptive plan. Genesis 3.15 is the first one. That's when God is cursing Adam and Eve and the serpent. When he's cursing the, the, the serpent, he says, that the seed of the woman will crush your head, serpent. So the seed of the woman, women don't have seed. This is an obvious sign of the virgin birth and the end of Satan. And so then the rest of the Bible, you're looking for who is that seed of the woman? Who is it going to come from? It gets more clear in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. That's tent pole number three, three rods kind of bound in one. It's that God makes it clear it's going to come through this guy, Abraham. He's going to have a massive family, and they are going to be my people. Then you have it go even more specific. When that family does get huge, innumerable in some sense, then God makes it clear, okay, I'm going to have it come through one tribe and one family in one tribe, the tribe of Judah, and then the lineage of David in the tribe of Judah. That's pole number three, 2 Samuel 7. So then you get to where, okay, it's got to come from David's family. That's where the promised one will come from. But we still have this problem of the law. We still have this problem of personal sin. If a Savior comes, a Redeemer comes, then how will we be fixed? And that's the last tent pole of the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, where God says, I will bring a new covenant and I will put my spirit within you. Because before, the Spirit's outside, invisibly, in the temple, right? Hovering above the Ark of the Covenant. But now he's inside, and you don't have to say to your brother, obey God. They will, because I'll be filling them. When, and then I'll forgive their transgressions. 
So the Old Testament is all just building towards the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this evening, here's what we're doing. We are concluding our Christ in the Old Testament series. What we're going to do is next week on, on Sunday evening, we're going to begin a series through 1 Samuel. We're going to be just walking just kind of passage by passage through 1 Samuel, which will help us round out our understanding of the, the third temple, but also give us insight into um, all things that pertain to life and godliness, because that's what the scriptures do. But what I want to do is end on a particular topic, a particular topic that's popular today. And it's, and it's centered around a question. What of the Bible's content did Jesus say? Now, you may already have examples running through your mind of friends or people or just Internet people arguing for Jesus said this, Jesus didn't say that in the Scriptures. But let's get after that question. What of the Bible's content did Jesus say? It's popular, and you may even have one sitting in your lap to have a Bible that has red letters and just four books of the Bible. Red letter movement, it was started out by, you know, probably people who had good intentions. I don't know their hearts. Good intentions to just highlight, make it more visible for you to be able to see the words that Jesus said. But what it does then is it juxtaposes the red versus the black. And then if you're like, well, if you don't really have time or you're just kind of making some you know, some triage decisions, then just read the red because that's all that really matters anyways. So it's driven us to theological minimalism and it's made us think that all the black Jesus didn't say, that the red he did. Then there's people who go further than just publishers and they're saying, no, all we believe is the red. That's all that actually matters in the whole Bible. So that's all we're gonna teach, that's all we're gonna talk about, that's all we're gonna emphasize. And then you can get to, from there, that was a couple decades ago, then you can get to a uh, where we are maybe here is this hyper-Christ-centered hermeneutic to where we're trying to be, you know, everything that matters in evangelicalism today is a hyphenated word, right? Bible-saturated, gospel-centered, Christ-centered, and all those words, they're not bad. But in a Christ-centered theology, we can become off-centered when we say that we're centered upon Christ only as we see him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so what he says there, we're going to say. What he doesn't say there, we're not going to really care about that much. It's not going to be that big of a deal to us. And then you have, even worse, is you have megachurch pastors who claim to have theological credentials saying, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. The rest of the Bible doesn't matter. And all that is is warmed over Marcionism from A.D. 144, where somebody thinks that they're smarter than God and says, here's the Bible. Let me just condense down the Bible and the important parts. We're just going to follow those. And that's always going to be something Jesus adjacent. Now, we do know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the central figure of the Bible. So when you hear these questions, shouldn't we give preference to his words, you kind of go, wow, I think so. Well, then what, it, like, wouldn't Paul and Isaiah want that? They wrote their own books, but wouldn't they want Jesus's books, Jesus' words to have preference? Well, that kind of thinking, let me just tell you this, that kind of thinking is, 
entailing at least three major errors. The first major error assumes that Paul, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Moses, James, Jude, whoever the other authors of scriptures are, that they wrote their own ideas. It presumes they wrote their own ideas. And so they would, of course, bow and say, put Jesus up front. But that's not how we got the scriptures. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture, how many? None is a matter of one's own interpretation. It wasn't Paul's idea, wasn't Isaiah's idea, wasn't Elijah's idea. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Well, then how did we get it? The verse goes on. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's how. So Paul and Isaiah would of course say, look to Christ, but the same Spirit of God inspired 1 Thessalonians and Jonah that inspired Matthew and John. Now, secondly, three, uh, the second major error that that kind of thinking entails is that it's an effective denial of the Trinity. Saying that, like, well, we need to give preference to just what Jesus said means that you don't understand that God is triune and that what the Holy Spirit says, the Son says, and the Father says. There are not two different gods. There's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. And if you're thinking along those lines, then what you need to be clarified on is that what you're doing is you're following classic theological liberalism. Classic theological liberalism was looking for a way to not look ridiculous to science and modernism as it's coming online. They're like, well, even the God of the Bible evolves over time. I mean, he's like angry in the Old Testament, but gracious and loving in the New. So we need to just kind of focus on, on that side of things. But that's why we went through the catechism in, in Westminster. Question number four, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Question five, are there more gods than one? There is but only one, the living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So to say we need to give preference to the words of Jesus over others is to deny the reality of the Trinity. And then lastly, it betrays an ignorance of the content of the New Testament. To say that means you don't really know your whole New Testament even because Jesus is constantly quoting from the Old Testament. Jesus insists in Luke 24, the whole Old Testament is about him. And everything that points to it is about him. They spoke of me. I am that one. I am the temple. I am the good shepherd. He goes on and on and on in his own words. And the New Testament authors, they attribute Old Testament actions of Yahweh, covenant God of Israel, to Jesus. And he brings up this thought of the repeated saying of Jesus to the Pharisees, have you never read? Have you never read? If you're gonna say, well, we should just listen to Jesus over these others. So here's what we're gonna do in our short time. We're gonna have one case study and we're gonna look at one question to answer this. What, what of the content of the Bible's content did Jesus say? Here's one, one that's a big one today. 
Jesus never addressed homosexuality in the red letters. So therefore, we shouldn't make such a big deal about it. He never said anything about it, so neither should we. Let's dig into that. First, let's do this. Let's, since we're doing Christ in the Old Testament, go to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, we're going to look at the very end of that, and then we're going to look at Genesis 19 as well. But this is chronologically the first moment where homosexuality is addressed. It's become so rampant that it has to be addressed. We'll be in verse 16 through 22. Here, quick. Then the men rose up from there. These are the men that have come and visited Abraham, and it is a theophany. This is God visiting Abraham. And they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, that's Yahweh, covenant God of Israel, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, God spoke, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great indeed, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. So God tells Abraham that Sodom and Gomorrah are so sinful that they have to be punished. They have to be punished in a drastic way. That's what God has demanded. Abraham, in verses 23 through 33, pleads for Lot. We're not going to get into that, but if you want a good cross-reference for that, go to Romans 8, 26, the spirit groaning with intercedings too deep for words. That's what that illustration is. Abraham goes, what about 50? Would you destroy it if there's 50 righteous? And then 45, what about 30? What about all the way down? And then he's really just trying to say, will you please spare Lot? And the spirit's interceding because he doesn't spare the city, but he does spare Lot. Now we read the state of Sodom in verses 1 through 11 in chapter 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, However, no, we will spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the both young and old, all the people from every quarter, and they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do whatever you like to them. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. 
So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Now here's the state of Sodom. It is so sexually deviant, so deviant that they don't even interest each other anymore. Have you put that together? They all come to the house and they're craving that outlet, lusting for it. But they all want the same. Why don't they just tear into each other? They all want it because they're so far gone in their sin that they have the only forced sexual assault. Rape is the only thing that they're interested in. That's the only thing that can captivate them now. Sin always metastasizes. It never is satisfied. It will always grow. Everybody at the door of Lot's house was willing to participate in whatever deviance that you wanted to do. But they, that didn't satisfy them anymore. They wanted somebody who wasn't ever done with those kinds of things. And they wanted to violate even further the law of God by forcing themselves on people. They're entirely uninterested in the natural function of the woman. You see Lot as a pathetic father. He calls them brothers, and then he offers his daughters. This is pathetic, but they don't even want that. That's not even enough for them. That's just Romans 127. In the same way also the men abandon the natural function of the woman, the natural function, and burn in their desire towards one another, meaning they desired that which is unnatural. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. They're so rabid that the only safety comes from the angels. It's this theophany of God supernaturally blinding them. Now, these homosexual men, they seek out and rage against the only people in town that they know disapprove of what they're doing. That's who they come and bang on the door of. They're not content. We're all cool with this. There's two guys in town that don't aren't okay with this but it's still our town and we can still do what we want they don't care they have to come and force you to comply that's what they're after the only people in town that aren't on forward with it and they're saved only by a miracle now lot's family is saved in part look at verse 12. then the two men said to lot whom else have you here a son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his son-in-law to be jesting. So Lot goes, okay, I believe you guys. He goes to his son-in-laws and says, hey, we got to go. God's going to destroy this place. And they're like, he's kidding around. That still happens today. Second Peter 3, 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You say this judgment day is coming, but it's never come. It's not here. Everybody dies, and it's been going on just like when our ancestors died. It's all the same. But verse 5, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. 
that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Through which the world at that time, or by which, by, the, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Lot's son-in-laws should have understood that. He's saying, oh, I'm, giving a, I'm being given a chance here, this patience. But they were not. And as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife, verses verse 15, your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought him outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request, not to overthrow the town which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zor. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. So now the judgment of God comes. Verse 24. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward, the valley, toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Fire rains down from the Lord, not just on the inhabitants, but on Lot's wife. She becomes this pillar of salt, and Jesus says in the book of Luke, remember Lot's wife. All whose hearts were not his were judged. And all Abraham saw when he woke up that next day was a smoking heap. That's all he saw. So how seriously does God take homosexuality? Extremely seriously. Did he have, did he show any tolerance for this endemic sexual deviance? None. What other cities in the entirety of the Bible did God unilaterally annihilate? None. This is the only one. This is the first time that sexual deviance appears so clearly in redemptive history, and God's unquestioned act towards it is annihilation. Now we know from then on how much God hates it. Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. To'eba in Hebrew. To'eba is abomination. It's physical repugnance is what it means. 
It's physically repugnant to God. It's the same word used to describe child sacrifice in Deuteronomy 12, 31. That's what abomination means. Now, we go through all that. And what did that have to do with Jesus? What did that have to do with Jesus? Besides him saying, remember Lot's wife. That you could just look at that and go, sure, the angry God of the Old Testament did that, but the New Testament Jesus is love and acceptance. Not according to Jude. In Jude verse 5 through verse 7, I'm reading this one out of the Legacy Standard, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. It says this, Now I want to remind you, though you know all things, that Jesus, having once saved the people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these in gross sexual immorality, having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The ESV and the LSB say in verse 5, they say that Jesus, the NASB says Lord, and either way, we know who is being spoken of because Romans 10, 9, and 13 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 9, and 10, 13. So Jesus is the Lord. And Jude says three things about Jesus in those three verses that Jesus is the one who destroyed all the rebellious Israelites in the wilderness, that Jesus is going to destroy all the rebellious angels at the end days and judgment, and that Jesus destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what Jude 7 says. The economic roles that there exist in the Trinity do exist. While we see, while we know that there's nothing the Spirit does, the Father doesn't do, we do know that the Son was on the cross and not the Spirit. So there's a bit of mystery that we can't fully understand. But when the Bible speaks clearly of the role of one member of the Trinity, that should pique our interest. And what Jude says, Jude, who is Jesus's half-brother, do you think that somebody today knows Jesus better than Jude? Do we certainly think that the Holy Spirit got it wrong when he said Jesus is the one who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's go back to Genesis 18, and I'm gonna replace the word Yahweh with Jesus. Look at verse 16 in Genesis 18. Then the men arose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. Then Jesus said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. And in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Jesus by doing righteousness and justice so that Jesus may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And then Jesus said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. Jesus will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, Jesus. And if not, I, Jesus, will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before Jesus. And then look at 1923. 
We're just saying, we're reading what Jude says is here. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then Jesus rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from Jesus out of heaven. And Jesus overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before Jesus. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when Jesus destroyed the cities of the valley that Jesus remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when Jesus overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. So, according to Jude, does Jesus, has he ever spoken to the issue of homosexuality? Absolutely he has. He spoke about it 19 chapters into the Bible. You think about it. What was God trying to make clear when only this much time had gone by? Not none of this. This much time had gone by. And it's so rancorously wicked that that's the example that he has to set. Who are we to say that Jesus whispers about any of this? He actually literally, using the word literally as it's meant to be used, thunders about it. Thunders about it. No question whatsoever. Jesus' wrath burns so hot against it that he wanted his people to know undeniably clearly how he felt about that abominable sin. And it's not us making it up. It's just us reading Jude and then going back to Genesis and our understanding of the Old and the New Testament. So don't ever let anyone tell you Jesus didn't mention it, so neither should we. So remember, this whole point was a practice of what we could do with dozens of things that just because we don't have something as clear as Jude, Jude saying it was Jesus who did it, that we always have a clarity that whatever gets said in the New by Jesus or reiterated by the apostles was first said in the old, that God hasn't changed in any way. His message hasn't been edited. He hasn't been like, I'm actually, never mind. Let's just rehash this whole thing. That didn't work out very good. I wanna do something different now. I'm gonna take it easier on you guys. I was a little bit harder before. So let's just try it this way from now on. That's not it. There was a plan from beginning to end. Even the old covenant law, even the old covenant law of you can't eat out of that bowl because a lizard fell off the wall into the bowl. You have to shatter that bowl. That's, that's not even a change because Jesus says, I just fulfilled that. It didn't go away. It wasn't changed. I fulfilled all ceremonial and all dietary laws. That's why we know that Christ is in all of scripture. And we know that the whole Bible, in order to form a right an orthodox Christology, understanding of Jesus, then we can't have just the red letters. We need the whole counsel of God. Listen to Paul as we close. Acts 20, talking to the Ephesian elders. Verse 18, and when they, the elders, had come to him, Paul, he said to them, you yourselves know from the last day that I, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plot of the Jews, how I, and here it is, how I did not shrink. I wasn't embarrassed 
from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink, I was not embarrassed from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Perhaps your translation says the whole counsel of God. That's what this is, the whole counsel of God. And Paul says, I didn't shrink back from saying any of it to you. None of it embarrassed me. None of it was internally inconsistent. I declared all of it to you. And that's what we do as a church. And may it always be so. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we come to you not with pride, not with anger. Lord, we see the sin of our day. We see the, the, the deviance that's rewarded, that's even lauded from the highest political position in our country. We know where we live. Lord, Help us to fight the disdain for deceived sinners that we have. It so easily grows within us. May we never choke on a single word that you've said in your scriptures like Genesis 19 and like Jude verse 7. But may we be quick with the gospel that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The same Lord who acted in such swift judgment. And Genesis 19, he's the one that says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. May that be on our hearts while we never flinch or bend or bow to the pressures of the lies of the culture. May we also know that there by the grace of God go I, that we too easily can become lot and looking and identifying more with the citizens of Sodom than with his own flesh and blood of the promise, Abraham and his family. We too can become that. May we keep ever vigilant. May we, may we be repulsed by what repulses you. And may we have compassion like you have compassion. We're, we are not given to balance, Lord. We wanna be extreme. We want to either be all compassion or all heavy-handed clarity. But you don't let us do that. Give us the balance of grace and truth. May we never tip in an exaggerated way towards one or the other. But may we say all with full throats and joyful hearts, all words of Scripture. Everything in Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 all 66 books, whether they are red, black, pink, or purple letters, that we would say all of it, we would shrink from none of it, and we would have upon our hearts that we say what you say, and you handle the results. You will do what you will do. May we just be faithful what you, what you called us to do. Lord, we are a sinful people but we thank you for having given us a magnificent, infinite Savior, the Lord himself, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we hope. 
And it's in his name we pray. Amen.